0: Good morning. In 2006, while I was watching um, some of the live stream or some of the some of the videos immediately after the Desiring God Pastors Conference, there was a an address given by Tim Keller called "Postmodernism and the Gospel." And I remember listening to this. I was taking a group of students to Chicago on a trip, and uh, I had downloaded this video, and I must have watched it maybe a half dozen times just over the course of the first week of downloading it. It's one of these things that kind of set me off on an early trajectory toward wanting to even plant a church because of some of the observations that in particular Keller was making, what others were making on postmodernism and the gospel. But one of the the points that he made that kind of stuck with me in terms of like thinking through evangelism and postmodern culture and all these things, um, he said... Emerging generations have a few different problems as it relates to receiving the gospel. So the gospel's preached, and an emerging generation hears that gospel, and for multiple reasons they might reject that gospel. And one of the problems that emerging generations, especially increasingly urbanized generations, have with the gospel is, it's a, he calls it a guilt problem. And as he kind of describes the, the guilt problem, he says essentially... We preach a gospel in which Jesus brings forgiveness of sin, and that necessitates a response from the hearer of a conviction. You know, so Matthew chapter five verse two: "Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven." So this is talking about spiritual bankruptcy—a recognition that I can't do anything. Right? That then leads blessed leads to blessed are those who mourn, who cry out to the Lord, recognizing that there's nothing that I can do. Right? Uh, That that's the response to my to my bankruptcy. It's a recognition that only he can do what I can't do, right? For they shall be comforted. But in order to do that, we need this recognition of our guilt, and that's really, really hard for an emerging generation. So when I heard that, a couple of different thoughts came to mind. One, I think it's probably true that this is to a degree generational. You know, I think older generations didn't have as difficult of a time recognizing human nature and depravity and sin because there was more of a moral framework rather than just um, an epistemological free-for-all, a, a postmodern uh, framework that says that nothing, is, nothing really is sin or it's dependent upon the hearer. And so I think to a degree it's, it's generational. I think to another degree it's not at all. I think to another degree like we read the scriptures and we see that everyone has a, this guilt problem, that nobody likes to think of themselves as guilty, right? And so uh, what should we do about it? Well, we could take the route of saying we need to find a way to communicate this gospel that doesn't require this burden of guilt to which I say no (laughs) okay Uh, I reject that quickly because otherwise we throw out the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount essentially and we say these first steps that Jesus necessitates for the hearer to to believe in this gospel that we're going to talk about this morning and if you're here this morning and a friend brought you, or you're watching online, and you're you're not sure what the gospel is. I just want to say we'll we'll talk a little bit about it, but it does necessitate, as we'll see, this response of throwing ourselves on the mercies of of God because of a recognition of our own sin. So, I think there are other ways that we can talk about the gospel, but to uh, jettison the idea of a guilty verdict is to jettison. The whole doctrine in in the New Testament of justification. And what Christ does for us in declaring us innocent despite our guilt. So I don't think that's it. At the same time, I don't want to just like have a church in which as we proclaim the gospel, we ignore a a problem, a contemporary challenge to that gospel going out. Like as a church, we we should recognize contemporary challenges to the gospel. And we should recognize the fact that a lot of our friends and a lot of our peers are growing up in a world that's going to tell them, well, um, what's what's sinful for you or what's rebellious for one person or what's immoral for one person as we talk about ethics or morals just isn't a framework that you can apply on everybody else. This is more postmodern. I don't think anybody actually believes that when the rubber meets the road, but I think it's something that is spoken a lot to the point where people just assume that that's the case. We should recognize that because of that, we do face that kind of a guilt problem. So what do we do about it? I think a few different things, but uh, that, that we'll get into a little bit this morning and increasingly in other sermons as we preach through the scriptures. But at least one of the things we do is pray. You know, that the whole sermon or, or talk that Tim Keller delivers at this 2006 Desiring God conference, this whole thing was based on this section in Mark chapter 9, I think, where... Uh, there's this boy who has an unclean spirit and the disciples try to cast out the unclean spirit. They're not able to. Jesus does. And then on the other side of that exchange, they ask Jesus, why were we not able to cast that out? And Jesus says, this kind can only come by, by means of prayer. This kind can only be expelled by means of prayer. You know? So I think we need to pray. You know, when we, when we delve into issues that revolve around the reality of our guilt, we need to pray. We need to pray for ourselves. To be convicted of sin because nobody likes that and we're going to talk about that this morning. We need to pray that the spirit would be among us. That as the word goes out we'd be receptive. That hearts would be receptive. And so um, we need to do that now. Lord, we ask for help this morning and the primary way that we ask for help is for you to show us Jesus. For you to show us who uh, God is on the pages of scripture. Who you are. And who we are apart from you and our desperate need for you. And for that to happen, Lord, for us to see the necessity of Christ, we need we need your spirit actively at work. Bringing conviction, soften our hearts, God, and yet pierce our hearts this morning. And allow us to receive that which you have for us in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so in the preceding chapter, Genesis chapter 41, we we witnessed together, I'm not sure if you remember from last week, it will be helpful if you weren't here or you didn't hear it to go back and listen, I think, to get a little bit more of the context. But in the preceding chapter, by way of review, we saw Joseph's rise to power from, from uh, this first hand vantage point, this glimpse of God's goodness in Joseph's life, both in times of advance and adversity, both in times, as we've said before, of success and suffering as Joseph was first rising to power within the household of Potiphar, the captain of the guard, entrusted with everything that was Potiphar's, had, author- had the authority of Potiphar in Potiphar's house, and then he finds himself in prison, even though he was in prison for, for, for his righteous actions. And yet the Lord was sovereign over this. He brings Joseph to this moment in which, at the opportune time, he's able to interpret Pharaoh's dream and demonstrate the wisdom that he has by way of the Lord... That brings him essentially into the highest office in Egypt outside of Pharaoh's office. He speaks for Pharaoh when Pharaoh's not in the room, and I want you to grasp the weight of that kind of authority. There's no one other than Pharaoh higher than him. He carries that, that authority, and again, we see this, this striking juxtaposition between God's goodness and presence in times of suffering as he's beaten by his brothers and thrown into a pit and sold into slavery and then later on uh, imprisoned for righteousness and also times of success as through those hardships God is active. He's doing this work of bringing things to where Joseph now has this position for a reason. So we've seen that God is good and present with his people in times of success and suffering but what about Sinfulness. This is a question that obviously Genesis has addressed, we've addressed together. But listen, here in the Joseph narratives, just thematically, I want you to think through this with me. We've seen God's act of goodness in the midst of suffering. That's, that's not his children's fault. Joseph is suffering multiple times throughout this narrative unjustly, right? So it's, it's not just action. Uh, on, uh, in terms of the way that others are responding to him, right? At least twice, it seems. But what about suffering that's the result of our sinfulness? What about when we need to stand trial for what we've done, rather than moments where we being, we're being imprisoned for what we didn't do, right? Okay. My two oldest daughters, uh, it's a weird transition, they weren't imprisoned. Um, and, and specifically my oldest uh, daughter, they love the stories of a well-known British novelist called rolled doll i'm sure if you've heard of doll he did like charlie and the chocolate factory wrote that wrote james and the giant peach uh the the bfg those kinds of 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 stories and um molly i still remember this time when molly approaches amy and i and she says something to the i think she was in third or just starting fourth grade and she wanted to throw a rolled doll party for her friends, where everybody dressed up like their favorite role doll char- character and came ready to discuss the stories in the book. Um, I was not thinking this way in third grade. In any case, one of her favorite books was Matilda. You know, and I actually took her to the musical Matilda when it was here in the Twin Cities. And uh, there's a book based on that. Uh, there's a movie based on that book that she actually watched at her birthday party with her friends and that she's I was watching it again the other night, which is why this came to mind. But it's about this little girl who's really extraordinary in a number of ways, despite being from a less than ordinary family. She's like the main protagonist, the hero of the story. Uh, But enough about her, the the villain. The villain of the story is a woman named Agatha Trunchbull. One of the things I love about Dahl is uh, his descriptions of villains, like even the names he gives them. Agatha Trunchbull sounds like a villain, right? And she sounds like the kind of villain she is. The headmistress or principal at the school that Matilda attends. All right, uh, She didn't choose this path because of her love for children, like a dedicated worker who really believes in kids or whatever. Quite the opposite. The more you get to know the Trunchbull, as this, the kids at the school call her, the more you realize that she likely chose this occupation for uh, similar reasons to why some wardens of prisons might choose theirs to see just punishment administered to those who are guilty in her, from her perspective. And you know, the things that she points to that are difficult about children actually can be difficult. That anyone who's worked with children for an extended period of time, anyone who actually is teaching in a school, see that you experienced this. Right? It's, th- these are realities, um, the lateness, the lack of care toward their work, the mistakes, the immaturity at times. At times, right? These things are reality. But in her mind, that meant that they were undeserving of good things. So there's this thi- scene in both the musical and in the movie in which there's this bowl of chocolates that she keeps out next to her, Agatha Trunchbull. And uh, this bowl of, of like really nice chocolates. And she doesn't allow any of the children to have it. And so when her niece reaches her hand across the table toward the bowl of chocolate, she smacks it away really viciously. And then she grabs one and puts it in her mouth. And she starts chewing. And she goes, mm, much too good for children. you know. And that really summarizes, this picture summarizes the character of Agatha Trunchbull. We kind of we joke around in the deckhouse a lot and grab the kids, mm, much too good for children. Um, Children can be troublemakers, and therefore, because they're troublemakers, we're going to deny them good, the good things. It's understandable that this is Dahl's villain, okay? Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, would paint a very different picture of God's relationship with his children. He says, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find it. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. The one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? How much more will your Father in heaven give good to his children, desire good for his children? Instead of God the Father, knowing the life that He's able to offer people in Jesus, and how rich and how good and how true it is, then saying, much too good for children. Much too good for sinners. Much too good for those who will blow it. For those who will take it. For those who will receive it and still f- fail time and again. Much too good for those wicked people. Instead of that, he gives himself to those who ask. He reveals himself to those who seek. He opens the door to those who knock. He gives good things to his children. He doesn't withhold. The question is, how does he do that? When he also knows that Ms. Trunchbull's conclusions about children are actually true when being applied to humanity as a whole. How does God the Father respond to his children when what they deserve actually is death and curses? And that brings us into Genesis 42 because here we see something of another courtroom drama. So We've seen a series of courtroom dramas throughout Genesis. We see another one. In chapter 42 in which the brothers who sold Joseph now, in a way, stand trial for this, for really the next two chapters, for this injustice that they committed when they beat Joseph, threw him in a pit, sold him into slavery. Okay, a couple of chapters ago. While the last chapter showed Joseph's rise to power, the present chapter begins to show the reader some of the divine purposes behind it. And the longer the narrative extends, the more we see that playing out. And actually, the narrative doesn't end until Genesis 45, as we'll see in a few weeks, when Joseph tells his brothers the ultimate purpose of those events. He says, God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So Joseph is being cast in these narratives as a savior. He's a savior, but how is that possible when what the brothers deserve is judgment? You know, like, we might think about Joseph in the prison a couple chapters ago, and we might think, well, he needed a savior because he was there unjustly. Like, he didn't do the act that he was accused of doing, and in fact, he did what was right. So he needs some kind of savior, but these brothers, they're guilty. So don't they need a judge instead of a savior? And it's like, well, Joseph does that too here. And so here we see one of the larger themes in the entire... entire first five books of the Bible that then moves us forward into the biblical storyline, which is this theme of life and death, blessings and curses. A fundamental question begins to move the narrative forward, and that's this. How is it possible for people who deserve death to find life? Isn't it true that the gifts of God are much too good for humans? All of the major commentaries of Genesis Observe here the reality as one of them wrote, the events that follow are cast as a narrative picture that show the way to return to the gift of life that was lost in the garden. The story of Joseph is fashioned into a quest for the lost tree of life, a way toward life, though we're deserving of death. Okay, so we see that story beginning to unfold in three sections of the narrative this morning a foreshadowing introduction. So we'll see an intro that kind of sets the table for the events that we're going to read about in chapter 42. All right? Not only sets the table, but, but is predictive, okay? Then we see a rising courtroom drama. As that stage is stages set, there's a rising tension in the story, and that tension comes is, is shown to us by way of a courtroom drama. So a foreshadowing introduction, a rising courtroom drama, and then two early verdicts. Two initial reactions that really are early verdicts of sorts like hasn't been handed down yet but we start to see where things are going okay so let's begin with a foreshadowing introduction verses one through five when Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt he said to his sons why do you look at one another right like let's let's go and he said behold I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt go down and buy it buy grain for us there that we may live and not die So, ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus, the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. So, once again, right, we're not done with Jacob yet. And the reader, I think, is like, ah, why? Um, Because... jacob as we've seen in the past kind of has a tendency to disappoint nevertheless here he is back on the stage off stage since chapter 37 but back here in 42 and as he comes back the author uses him to set the stage for what's to come he records his words to show us what's about to happen essentially laying out the reason that the brothers need to head into egypt so as chapter 41 left off joseph's interpretation which was given to him by the lord is shown to be correct there's a great famine. It has now actually spread across the land. The brothers need to travel to Egypt in order to get grain. Just like a good introduction, it's summarizing the events. It's setting the scene for us. But it's, interestingly enough, it's more than that. right? Jacob's words in this introduction actually predict the conclusion. They tell us how the story is going to end. And we saw this throughout Genesis, you know, in places like oh, when when Abraham is commanded to sacrifice his son Isaac, and Isaac comes to him and says, you know, in the beginning of the story, "Where's, where's the goat? Where's the ram for sacrifice? And Abraham sadly says, well, God will provide the sacrifice. Right? So Abraham was actually telling the reader what would eventually happen as God would provide the sacrifice for them. And in the same way, in this introduction, we see Jacob telling us what's going to happen. It happens in a couple of different ways. First in verse 2, set your eyes there. Jacob says, behold, I've heard that there's grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. Okay, as we continue to see, everything, everything that's happened since the beginning of the Joseph narratives, when he was thrown into the pit and sold into slavery, all of it has happened for that reason. That God's people might live and not die. And again, it shows us this overarching theme of life and death, blessings and curses that we start, started to see in one, Genesis 1-3. through 3, See throughout the, the book, into the Pentateuch. That's the first five books of the Bible. And then the rest of the scriptures. And so the author foreshadows this moment when they realize that everything that's been done up to this point has been done. That they might live and not die. Okay. Second, though, it does this by acknowledging what needs to be addressed now. In Genesis 42, their own sinful rebellion and injustice against Joseph that kind of moves into center stage. How? He doesn't actually bring up those events. Well, he wouldn't send Benjamin. And we actually see explicitly this time made later on in this chapter, but, you know, the, the reader can, I think, see the connection is obvious here in these introductory chapters. Jacob has two sons by Rachel, Joseph, whom he favored, who then was lost to him, and now Benjamin. The fact that he would not send Benjamin demonstrates in a very real way the tension that has developed between Jacob and these 10 older brothers. And while Jacob doesn't know that Joseph actually didn't die in the way that his sons claimed, but they actually sold them into slavery, now we start to see that the guilt of this injustice moves a little bit into center stage increasingly as the story goes on so what happens as these guilty brothers come before the one that they've offended how do they present themselves to him well that's where we move from a short a a foreshadowing introduction to now a rising courtroom drama takes us all the way so from 6 to 25 i would put as the rising courtroom drama But we'll just let's just read the first three verses six through eight now joseph was governor over the land He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. So Joseph had authority and he had administration, right, under him. And Joseph's brothers came around and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan, to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Okay, so... This rising drama takes off pretty quickly here. As the brothers make their way to Egypt, Joseph sees and recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. And there's a lot of reasons why they might not recognize him. Like a lot of understandable, I think, reasons on the outside of things. Okay, uh, they haven't seen him in many years. All right, they probably assume they probably assume he's dead. They sold him into slavery, so they assume he's not around anymore. At the very least, he's not going to be anywhere near where they see uh. The, the, the room that they've entered at this point, he's speaking through an Egyptian translator, according to verse 23. So they don't even know if he's understanding their Hebrew dialect. He's wearing all the trappings of an Egyptian officer uh, to the highest level, like a pharaoh. He has an Egyptian name, okay? So there's a lot of reasons, but the most obvious one is, from their perspective, who in their right minds would ever expect someone sold As a slave to have the authority of a king. You know, someone in Joseph's position coming in humbly to then be given the authority of kingship. Right? Well, in the same way, these sons would actually disregard Joseph's dreams in chapter 37. Who in their right minds would imagine an entire family bowing down to the youngest? Even Jacob has a problem with that. As favored as Joseph was. They consistently, in other words, these brothers consistently fail to recognize what God is doing to save them through Joseph. Joseph recognizes them in verse 8, but they fail to recognize him. As we'll see in just a minute, Joseph recognizes it as something of a fulfillment of these dreams, right? In which the stars and sun and moon are bound down to him, The, the brothers' stalks of grain. We're bowing down to his stocks of grain. Bowing to both his authority and provision. You know, his authority and administration, which now he's overseeing as they're bowing down to him. The brothers are totally oblivious to this. And it's at the forefront of his mind. And it's the last thing they expect, right? And so some of this is this contrast between this new kind of heart that this character Joseph kind of predicts in the biblical narrative with these brothers who clearly have no discernment from the lord they have no discernment they're not able to see all right but then things take a turn in this courtroom the drama rising even more starting in verse 9 and joseph remembered the dreams that he would dreamed of them and he said to them you are spies you've come to see the nakedness of the land they said to him no my lord your servants have come to buy food we're all sons of one man we're honest men okay pause there for a minute the reader and even joseph Hears them describe themselves as honest men in front of him. And, you know, there's probably, he's really having to fight just like a, you know, just an audible, that's ridiculous kind of expression, I have to think. And the reader has to fight that as we read this because it's like, okay, do do you remember what happened with the defilement of Dina, right? Do you remember how you dealt with that problem when your sister was taken advantage of in that way, which was horrible, but then you dealt with it by lying to this prince, promising him safety, security, and then killing every man and enslaving their women and children. Do you remember this? Do you remember how you, not only threw Joseph into slavery, but then you took this richly ornamented robe, tore it to shreds, dipped it in goat blood, and then said to your dad that he's, he's dead? You're honest men? This is really how you're going to posture yourself. Okay, so your servants have never been spies. Okay, He said to them, No, it's the nakedness of the land you've come to see. Verse 13, And they said, we, your servants, are twelve brothers, the son of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is, as, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, so again he speaks with Pharaoh's authority, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you, let him bring your brother While you remain confined, that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you. Or else, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. So, Joseph accuses his brothers of being spies. He knows that's not true, obviously. We know that that's not true. So, it kind of prompts the reader to ask the question, why is he doing this? Like, why is he speaking harshly? Why is he making these false accusations of them and in some ways the most natural reading of the text is to, to say was well, it revenge is that why he's doing this is he trying to is he angry and jo- joseph is trying to get even with his brothers i mean we, we kind of in some ways we read into the text what we would want to do with our siblings if we were in this kind of situation we do a little fist pump for joseph where it's like get him, man like this is good this is good i like this Uh, but if if we're we're carefully reading, I actually think we have to rule out revenge or bitterness as the reason for his actions, as the motivator. And and I think we have good good reason to rule it out. Starting here. It doesn't say in verse 9, set your eyes there, it doesn't say, And Joseph remembered what they had done to them and how they were so merciless and unjust and said to them, You are spies. It doesn't say that in verse 9. It says, And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. So so both Hamilton and Selheimer point out everything that follows in this narrative is connected in the text with Joseph's dreams. The hardships of the past actually aren't what's driving the narrative. The dreams of the past absolutely do, absolutely drive these events. But it's not something that we see come to fruition until later narratives, and not much more is actually said in the text here related to Joseph's motivations, except we get a few clues moving forward, all right? But at least at this point in the text, Joseph is really almost oddly stalwart in his interpretation of his, uh, in his interrogation of his brothers, right? He's, uh, He's unrelenting toward his brothers, even after they just fall all over themselves to explain who they are and where they came from. And even when that forces them to, in his presence, invoke the reality that he was lost to them because of their actions, they say in verse 13, one is no more, right? Even with that, Joseph seems to act as though he doesn't actually hear any of it. He just dismisses it entirely. He says, as I said, you are all spies. His schemes now place the onus on the brothers to get their youngest brother, his little brother, Benjamin, To Egypt. And the reason for that is Joseph knows the collision course that he's setting his brothers on. And so he imprisons them for three days. The drama continues starting in verse 18. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live. For I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody. And let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, In truth we are guilty concerning our brothers. In truth we are guilty concerning our brother. In that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. So they're speaking in Joseph's presence. Joseph's hearing everything that they're saying. Joseph's understanding it very well, right? And look at how he responds, verse 24. Then he turned away from them and wept, and he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's donkey in his sack to give them provisions on uh, for, the, for the journey, this was done for them. So Joseph tells them that everyone but one of them can go home to get Benjamin and then come back. And he sets this newest test out. And as he does so, two realities jump off the page. First, through Joseph's schemes, the brothers are now beginning to realize that they must come to account for what's been done Right? They started this exchange presenting themselves as honest men. There's kind of a guilt problem. Oh, we're honest men. But now as this has continued, they start to feel the weight of this. Right, Reuben says, so now there comes a reckoning for Joseph's blood. They're all recognizing that this is happening because of their sinfulness. But remarkably, as we said earlier, this isn't revenge for Joseph. It's a means of demonstrating their guilt. Right? While they're guilty of great evil that they actually must see as evil, God intended that for good. He intended it for good. We see this displayed first in Joseph's reassurances to them that echo, you know, what Jacob said at the beginning of the chapter. He says, do this and you will live. That sounds an awful lot like the book of Deuteronomy when God's addressing his people routinely. Do this and you will live, right? It demonstrates that Joseph is showing them the way to life. life, and you know, this, this contrast between life and death. But we also see this displayed secondly in his reactions. In verse 24 he has to turn away from them. To conceal his emotions in the midst of this. His schemes do entail them recognizing their guilt. But it also does seem from the text that he's already forgiven them. It's a realization of God's sovereign grace that drives the narrative. Not a reactive plan for revenge on the part of Joseph. He needs them to recognize their guilt. In other words, what we find here at the end of this second section is that there's a grace of guilt. There's a grace of guilt. And I I think this is something that can easily be overlooked. I mean, in our culture, as we said at the outset, guilt is oftentimes viewed entirely in the negative, right? Well, if you're feeling guilty, you're just being too hard on yourself. You're applying old standards or someone else's framework, you know, moralistic categories, uh, and you just need to let yourself off the hook and follow your heart and be who you were led. To, you know we like to relieve ourselves as, of guilt as often as possible, and we miss the reality that guilt is a grace. It's a grace that that Joseph is saying, you're not going to find the life that that Jacob alluded to at the beginning and that I'm telling you about now apart from a recognition of the reality that you deserve death. And so all that now leads from a foreshadowing introduction to a rise in courtroom drama, and now two early verdicts, initial reactions that show early verdicts in the events of the narrative so far. So, starting in verse 26, then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is at the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? So the first initial reaction comes from the brothers when, after stopping for the night, because this journey from Egypt to where they lived in Canaan was too long to make in a single day. Joseph knew this, right, that they'd be staying for the night. And so as they stop, they look in their sack, and they find their money. And they're extremely worried. They say, What is this that God has done to us? They're understandably worried because they're already accused of being spies, and now it's going uh, to appear as though they're cheats and thieves, too, that they, they took the grain, but that they're keeping their money, that they're not paying for it. Right? But interestingly enough, the reader knows that Joseph has done this, and yet the brothers aren't wrong in also saying that God has done this. There, there's a recognition going back to what they realized at the end of that second section that they are guilty there's an early verdict on their part that recognizes God is bringing judgment. As, as Victor Hamilton writes, he says, What they attribute to God has been perpetrated by Joseph. Without their knowledge, Joseph has been the vehicle God is using to bring these brothers to face reality. Joseph is not himself God, as he will say later on, but he is God's instrument. What reality is Joseph is Joseph uh, confronting them with? The reality of their guilt. And that leads us to an, a second initial reaction in our text because so the brothers are condemning themselves. The brothers see that this comes from God, that this is judgment. This situation has come about because of their past mistakes, but the brothers come back to Jacob. And essentially, they recount everything in the narrative to him in an abbreviated form. Their main focus is on the return of Benjamin, as Joseph intended. And look at Jacob's response. In verse 36, set your eyes there. And Jacob their father said to them, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin? All this has come against me. Joseph blames the boys. He says, you've done this. You are guilty. There's another initial early verdict of guilty one coming from the brothers toward their own hearts a recognition of their own guilt a recognition of judgment and now one from their father then reuben said to his father kill my two sons if i do not bring him back to you put him in my hands and i will bring him back to you but he said my son shall not go down with you for his brother is dead and he's the only one left he's saying that's kind of a a thumb in the eye that, that Re- Reuben's obviously saying, I will bring your son back to you. That, this is how sure I am of that. And J- Jacob essentially says, yeah, at least you have two sons. I have one. His brother is dead. He's the only one left. If harm should happen to him for the journey you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. Jacob's response is truer than even he knows. It's truer than even he realizes. It was the actions of his sons that did bereave him of Joseph, even more than he knows. And now those actions have led to his bereavement of Simeon. The sons have been found untrustworthy, and so once again in the narrative, because of the words of Jacob, upon hearing all of this, they're confronted with their own evil actions. So effectively, Joseph has put the evil of their brothers on full display in this courtroom, and it goes with them in this guilty verdict. He's not centered his charges on that point, but rather stirred it up. He's used this to stir it up in their hearts, forcing them to acknowledge it in his presence with one another, and now with their father, who doesn't even know how right he is in what he repeats back to them when he repeats back their guilt. You've done this. And that prompts the reader to a question that we'll see answered in the next few narratives. How can their evil be covered over? But the immediate point of this passage is that what awaits these brothers is actually not the evil they intended for Joseph, though that's what they deserve, but rather the good that God intends for them through Joseph. And this is good news for the sinner in at least a couple of different ways. First of all, to go back to the immediate point that we've made throughout this morning, it's good news for the sinner because guilt is a grace. Guilt is good news for the sinner. Guilt is good news for the sinner because in order to come to this position in which I understand and receive Christ, I do need this spiritual bankruptcy. I do need a recognition that I can't do this any longer, right? And we talked before about John Calvin saying when we come before the Father, we don't, we don't fill up our hands with all these things and say, look at, look at all that I have. If We come to him with something, we get nothing, but instead he calls it the empty hands of faith. We come with the empty hands of faith, we say, I have nothing. I'm not able to do anything. I'm guilty. You must do everything. I can do nothing. And so guilt is grace. This is also good news for the sinner because while we intended evil in our rejection of God, he intended our good through Jesus Christ. So that what awaits us is not the evil we intended, but rather the good that God intends for us through him. By his spirit, we're made to have conviction of sin, right? The grace of guilt, repentance, and a turning away from it. By his spirit, we can see and recognize, right? This can only come about through prayer, can only be cast out through prayer. This idea that I'm not guilty can only be cast out by the spirit who comes and prompts conviction in our hearts and a recognition that I'm a sinner in need of a savior. Causing us to then believe and repent, turn away from the gospel with new desires and new heart. A new life found only in him. God's grace and mercy is extended to his people, not only because of their sin, but despite their sinfulness. This was accomplished ultimately on the cross. As Jesus' Jesus' crucifixion is a picture of this. Crucified by sinful humanity. Raising up against him. Rejecting him at the cross. As we saw even at Good Friday, we talked about this entirely. And yet by that very same crucifixion, by that very same outrage against him at the cross, he saves us. Bearing our guilt, bearing our rebellion, bearing our rejection of him in his death. Receiving the wrath that we deserved so that by faith in his working out the divine purposes, we might have life in his work. Listen, everything that happened to Joseph as a result of the brothers' guilt, should have happened to the brothers. And in fact, we start to see that a little bit hinted at the text. So Joseph was sold into slavery and uh, sent to Egypt. Now the the, the brothers go to Egypt, and in a sense they're enslaved by Pharaoh. Joseph was wrongly accused. The brothers are wrongly accused in this moment. Joseph was imprisoned. Now we see in this chapter the, bo- the brothers are imprisoned. But that's actually not what they get in the end. Instead of the things that are happening to Joseph becoming the future reality of these brothers, it happened actually to Joseph. The whole point of the story is it happened actually to Joseph that through him they might find life. And everything that happened to Jesus as a result of our guilt should have happened to us. We were deserving to have that retribution poured out upon us. But instead, it happened to Jesus that through him, we might find life. And so, we proclaim this at the table each week. Christ bearing our burdens. Jesus Christ going to the cross, and for us, shedding his blood, his body broken, that our bodies might not be broken, that our blood might not be shed, that we, might be, that we might enter into a new way of life with him. And so this morning, if you're here and you're a believer, if you confess this, if you recognize your sinfulness, if you recognize your guilt, you recognize your need for a Savior and you've thrown yourselves upon the mercies of Christ at the cross to save you and you've, you've uh, been invited and welcomed into this new way of life through his Son. This meal is for you. This, this table is for you as we gather together. If you're not a believer, we ask that you'd observe. If you're here this morning and, and you don't know if this is what you believe, We ask that you participate, but participate by observation and asking questions. Or throw yourself on the mercies of Christ right now. Believe upon his name to save you, because he's the only thing that can. And make this your first meal as a believer of the Lord's table, declaring this life-saving death of Jesus.